Hello, welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I'm happy to be speaking with Lauren Assad Shepard. Lauren is a historian, writer, teacher. She teaches in the Department of Education and Human Development at the University of New Orleans. She is the author of the book Resistance from the Right Conservatives and the Campus Wars. And she is an expert in all things higher education from the 20th century to the present. Uh, we talk about her book uh, at length, and we talk about many of the things about the new right and on college campuses, especially between the period of uh, 1967 and 1970. So we talk about how she organized her book and why she put it in that time frame. We talk about the idea of presentism, uh, what that's about. We talk about the new right and how it got exported to mass media and politics. We talk about um, if whether the new right were for something or they were just anti-left. We talk about um, young Americans for freedom. We talk about how there was this transition from taking the new right movement from college to more political organizations. Uh, we talk about libertarians a bit and how they split from conservatives within those college groups. And we talk about the impact uh, that these college groups had uh, during the late 60s and 70s on current conservative politics, uh, along with a host of other topics. Uh, this was an absolutely fantastic conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and uh, she was she was so uh, lively to talk about all these things and kind of, uh, you know, really give all of the history about it. As I mentioned in the conversation, her book is, is fantastic because it's uh, very detailed. Um, but the conversation feels just that, very conversational. And uh, I got along very well. And I think uh, the end result was that it was a, a really good way to kind of get a snapshot or a look into, you know, the new right on college campuses uh, in a pretty important period of 20th century, at least for the United States. And so uh, there's a lot, lot to kind of mine out from this conversation. As always, you can find this conversation and all other conversations at Converging Dialogues at Substack.com. I'm also on YouTube, so go and uh, subscribe, follow, and uh, share widely. And now I bring you Lauren Masab Shepard. I'm here with Lauren Lasab Shepard. Uh, Lauren, uh, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I'm uh, greatly looking forward to uh, speaking with you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, of course. You uh, you have written a, a really wonderful book, which I am very excited to uh, to talk about. Before we do, why don't you tell uh, listeners uh, who you are, uh, what your background is in academically and professionally, and uh, what you're currently up to. Okay. Uh, well, thank you. Um, so I am Lauren Lassab Shepard. Uh, I am a part-time historian. I'm a part-time faculty at the University of New Orleans. Um, and then the other part of the time, I'm a Pilates instructor. Uh, and so one habit funds the other. And, I, and I'll let your <laughs> listeners <laughs> figure out which is which. Um, it's probably not the one that you think. Uh, yeah, so I um, am a historian of American higher education. Uh, and recently, I'm, when I teach, when I teach history of American higher ed, we go back until um, the 17th century. But my focus uh in the book and then for future projects um, is really on the 1960s to present. Um, so I've kind of been lit, especially the last few weeks, I've been living in the 1970s. Um, and that's where my, my brain is at right now. But um, yeah, that's what I do. So I research higher ed history. 
yeah, that's that's great. You have a uh, you have a book that's uh, uh, coming out. It's called uh, "Resistance yes. from the Right: Conservatives and the Campus Wars in Modern America." Uh, it's a great title. It's a great subtitle. It's very very nice. Um, and uh, and that's what I'm I'm very really really curious to to discuss with you. And uh, I, I've obviously read your book, and it was great. Uh, thoroughly researched. I mean, it was. I, I never really have expectations when I go into books and I'm like, oh, you know, I'm expecting, you know, that obviously people do their homework and stuff. But I was like really blown away. I was like, whoa, this is like super detailed, really, really detailed. There's a lot of a lot of uh, stuff there, stuff, you know, three fourths of the stuff I didn't know. So it's it's uh, it was really nice to kind of sink my teeth into it. And I could tell all the hard work you put into it. So it was it was great. I had I had a blast reading it. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, it, that's actually uh, a piece of feedback that I've gotten a lot is that it's very detailed. Um, and that always takes me back, but I guess it makes sense. I mean, whole book, you know, it's 200 pages, but it's a, only about three years. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we're really like hanging out 1967, 1970. We're spending a lot of time there. So, I mean, I guess that's the, the reason why, but um, I mean, a, another part of doing that project was just as a grad student, um, I wanted to, I wanted this to be an ethnography. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the book is based off of a lot of, I should clarify, the book is a product of my dissertation. Mm-hmm. Um, but so there are a lot of like interviews, there's a lot of quotes, but I mean, I had to back all of that up with some sort of, uh, you know, archival source or try to figure out if, if what the, the things that people told me were true. And I don't mean to, to say that, you know, I didn't trust my narrators, um, but it's just the nature of the project itself. So for anyone who who doesn't uh, know the book, um, a quick synopsis. Resistance from the right uh, is about college students in the late 60s. So at the height of the Vietnam War, uh, the height of the anti-draft movement, the height of black power movements, especially on campus, demands for black studies. Um, this is a book about students on the right who are pushing back against all of that. So your pro-Vietnam War students who, even if they may have had their own draft deferments, were still very much excited about seeing, uh, you know, other of their peers who maybe weren't on campus be drafted. Um, so they were very much for the war. They were very much against uh, Black studies and later in the 70s against gender studies and um, Chicano studies. Uh, so that's that's the group of people I was talking to. And when I was interviewing them, I did these interviews um, from like 2016 to 2019. Uh, so this was like in the middle of the Trump administration. Uh some of them, for some of them, their political views had changed over time since they were college students. But I mean, for the most part, these were 80 year olds who were diehard conservatives and Trumpers. And so, of course, when I interviewed them and I asked them, uh, you know, what do you remember about the late 1960s and the things that you specifically did that were, you know, in your efforts were to try to, to stop black studies programs being created on your campus, you know, I have to of course, I'm listening to them. I want to know what they have to say, and then I have to try to find ways to to triangulate triangulate that and make sure that that uh, you know the things that they're telling me line up with with what I actually see in the archives. Um, so yeah, so that's a long explanation to say that it is thoroughly researched, but I had to do that because uh, just you know the nature of of ethnography and oral interviews, um, and you know the the fact that this was a political topic. 
Yeah, I guess that there's something about the appeal of it for me was, as you mentioned, so much of the time we hear from the the late 1960s, all of these uh, movements on college campuses, mostly on the left. And we hear about the movements on college campuses on, on the left um, as a, you know, this this time frame in, in, in U.S. history um, where a lot of folks, you know, kind of anti-Vietnam or um, for certain racial movements going on or, or women's rights movements, all these different things at the same time. And and there's all these other cultural things as well with, with the late 60s and early 70s. But one of the things I think that might go unnoticed, which is something I think you're trying to do in the book, is that, well, there was also stuff going on on this other side of things, on right-wing politics, on campus. And so I guess the the one question I have here is, I guess in the kind of, uh, the minds of, I guess, how we remember things. Why, for 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 the public here in the U.S., why do we not remember that as well as saying, "Hey, wait a minute, there was another movement here." I'm sure people, you know, that are in this research know this, but 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 generally, we don't really hear that side of the story. And 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 I think you do it obviously, as I said, total justice for trying to understand it in context and its time. But we see a lot of ripple effects of right-wing politics currently today. I mean, many of the people that were uh, of this age are now in you know U.S. government on you know in the Republican Party currently, um, and so Indeed. why why so there's a through line there. But I guess why has this this kind of uh, this aspect been overlooked? I guess in our in our history, or it's not talked about as much. Um, oh gosh, this is going to be an extremely long answer. I'll try to make it short, but there's, there's so many different reasons for that. Uh, one, I would start just with the framing of the question. And I know this isn't your intent, but I don't want readers to, or listeners to, to read anything into this. That was not my intent, but I didn't go into this project as like a both sides thing. Like, well, what, you know, let's talk about the right too, because to be perfectly honest with you, the people that I'm talking about in these, in the book, these college students, uh, these conservatives, uh, were not a big group. Like truly, they really weren't. I mean, uh, Young Americans for Freedom, YAF, um, is the national organization that attracted most of them. Um, and it at max had 20,000 members, probably more likely had 15,000 members. And we're talking about, um, a national group. So, I mean, this is the that's so that's one reason um they weren't very big uh the other reason is that they're you know adversaries or at least in their own mind they're adversaries the new left uh have been very prolific uh in talking about what they did i mean so many of the the characters of the new left as students after they graduated they went on to become college professors and write book, books about their experiences um and of course there's a lot of historical uh, interest in especially the year 1968. I mean, there's been so much research on that. And and so the left does, you know, take a lot of this attention. Uh, and, and one thing that you hear in the literature often to describe the new left is that their ascent was sort of meteoric in the sense mm-hmm. that, you know, they're like, they, they rise to national attention very quickly, very rapidly. They're like this, you know, brilliant fire of like gaining media attention. And then all of a sudden after Kent State, uh, 
certainly by 1975 when we pull out of the war um, and even, you know, in the years between, um, they just kind of disappear from the headlines, right? They're, they're gone as quickly as they come back in. And so the, the story of the new left can be pretty neat. Um, you can just kind of like pack it into just a handful full of really, really intense. Um, and I, I would argue successful years uh, for their cause. Um, on the right, those students, as you say, uh, did go on um, to become major political figures all throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and many of them are still in office today in extremely powerful positions. Uh, and so that's the part of their careers that they talk about. Um, you know, a, if you're reading a biography, let's say, of Karl Rove, um, Karl Rove is going to mention his time in uh in Utah in 1969 as his campus, you know, um, president of the College Republicans Club. Uh, but then he's quickly going to jump on to, and then I moved to Washington, D.C. I didn't finish my degree, whatever, left college behind. I went on to do all of this other really important stuff with the GOP and then become a strategist. So they all mention their time as college students, but they don't focus there because they have much larger achievements moving forward. Um, and then uh, something else you said, um, you said you suspect that people who study this, you know, certainly know about the right. And that's actually, I don't think the case either. I mean, mm -hmm. political historians for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, but people who study like the 1960s, I mean, they're familiar with YAF. Uh, YAF does have one academic monograph. Um, and John Andrews, uh, the author, he's passed since then. But the other histories of YAF are all written by former YAFers themselves. Mm. Um, and they're not critical uh, at all. They're not academic books. Um, like they're all published by either ISI's Press or Henry Regnery, which is like a right-wing publishing house. Um, so, I mean, I guess I'm trying to keep this answer brief. Uh, there's... There's so many reasons why it's gone overlooked, but uh, the the dissertation and then, of course, the book uh, was my attempt to bring it back into um, scholarly attention. Uh, because John Andrews' book, uh, I mentioned a second ago, that was published in 1999. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's been decades since we have talked about this seriously. So, mm -hmm. yeah, in in monograph form, I'll I should add to that because there have been uh, mm -hmm. chapters like in scholarly journals or uh, edited volumes that mention it. But I mean, this, I, I really thought I felt that 67 to 70 needed their own, uh, needed the treatment of an academic. Mm, yeah. Well, I, and I definitely want to stay there. I don't, I don't want to, one of the things I, I work very hard is, you know, I'm not a historian, obviously, and many people that aren't, they always like to take whatever historical period and, and and try to make this juxtaposition with current day. And, and I don't, I think some of that maybe is okay, but I think a lot of it is not very helpful. I think it's, it's good to keep things at least first contextually between the, the years. The, the question I have about that though, is, is one of the major thesis points in, in your book that the influence of the new right on college campuses well, was, was less known, or as you said, it was a small group but that the outgrowth and the in the evolutionary impact on mass media, as we said, many of these figures went on to strategists or congressmen and women or et cetera, uh, years later within conservative circles, that does that does that really have that basically it, it outgrew a college campus 
And, and then it just went to mass media and then it went to how we see things today and, and, and all of these big groups that are kind of, you know, movers and shakers for the Republican Party that now have influence and then are influencing subsequent, you know, conservative generations. Is, is that kind of where we see how this gets exported or, or is that too much of a leap to say with, with some of the movements in this, in this period of the new right in the 67 to, to 70? Um, well, I want to want to address the first comment um, even before the question. So, uh, you said that people who are not historians have a tendency to take something from the past and then you know superimpose modern concerns on it. That's a, that's been a huge debate in the last, mm-hmm. um, I guess, year, maybe even longer, uh, especially from the American Historical Association, the AHA. It's like the largest professional organization for historians, um, and the the concept that gets debated as presentism. Mm. Um, I, you know, that's it, <laughs> anyway, maybe I'll just, I'll just flag that. I'm not going to take a side. Uh, well, no, I am going to take <laughs> well, a side. What's, what's your, what's your, <laughs> okay. <laughs> spell it, uh, spell it out for me, I guess. And then you can take a side if you want, but spell it out for why, why are we having that question or if we, sh- we should or should not this presentism, should we, should we leave things only in their context or should we, I guess, how much from things in history do we take as lessons for modern day or, or is it not, it's too different? How do we, how do we, um, I guess, oscillate between those two kinds of things, I guess. Well, it's not, I mean, it's never going to be a perfect roadmap. Like, oh, look, we tried this one thing in the past. So we, and it failed, so we shouldn't do it moving forward or whatever. But I mean, the whole debate has to do with the usefulness of learning the past. Like, why do we learn the past? Is it to learn um, lessons? And so, you know, people can, can take whatever side, but the the big debate that was over AHA had to do with like the, the memory and the history of um, slavery. Um, and so there was a, a write-up in the AHA's newsletter um, about this was last summer. I'm sure if any of your listeners are are big followers or close followers of Twitter, they probably remember this debate, especially if they're historians um, or otherwise in other ways affiliated with the humanities. But the debate was around um, like Americans or uh, I guess you could have been from anywhere, but people returning like to West Africa um, and visiting like ports of of like slave trading ports. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the way that they're understood in modern times. And so anyway, that specific presentism debate is having to do with like a span of, you know, four centuries, right? Mm-hmm. So like, mm-hmm. you know, things that happened a very, very long time ago, and of course they're still relevant today. Um, I, in my research about the sixties and the seventies, I mean, those people are still living, right? So the, the, the time frame is much more, um, condensed. And, and so, I mean, there are certain things that are, uh, in a sense can be more relevant. Um, and so I wouldn't call those things presentist at all. And the big debate thing in the, it, in AHA was that people are saying, well, we can't just keep slavery like nicely tucked into the past and then not use it as a useful tool to understand, you know, certain challenges that people face today. Um, so I don't know. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think that the, the leadership of AHA fell on the right side of that debate, but I'll, I'll well, it's a com- it's, I think it's a complicated because what you're describing is the sense of time. Right. And, and of, of course, there are people that are, you know, you have 
generations of people from from you know hundreds of years um here in the United States but even if you take this globally you start going to other countries and other places and other civilizations and this is we're talking about thousands of years talking about millennia um you know i think time as you as as you're as you're explaining is is important right time is is obviously really important because um yeah something that was we have folks that are still in government or they're still making policy or you know and there's uh maybe not a direct correlation but there's a a, a ripple effect we can see uh, a little bit more um you know pro- proximate for us that's much different than something in you know 1350 let's say um or 1750 right obviously there's impact obviously there's a connection but and that's not to say that it's not important obviously there is importance but obviously we're going to for us now maybe for people after us it will be different but for us now we're still feeling uh i guess you could say aftershocks or many of the things in institutions that were done in the 60s and 70s that was only you know 50 55 years ago so of course there's going to be a more proximate versus distal kind of discussion on how there is, um, I guess, more saliency in some ways or relevance in terms of time and distance. But obviously, both are relevant in their own way, and both have have uh, have impact. So, wh- why do why do people fight about this? I guess what, is it is it one they want it all to be relevant at the same time, or what's the fight? Well, yes. I mean, uh, of course, if you are a historian of anything, you think that your work is extremely (laughs) relevant. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, you're holding a hammer and everything looks like a nail. Uh, And I think another thing that this has to do with, so um, a a big criticism of of the people who are in the humanities over the last few years is that we've been too academic um, Mm -hmm. and we've been too, like, trapped at the ivory tower and we have not communicated the importance of our work or when we have, it hasn't been received maybe because the way we've delivered it. I don't know that people beat up on the humanities for all sorts of reasons. Mm. Um, and so in the last few years, there's definitely been a push, um, from, from within academia to make our work more accessible to the public. So writing, like doing public history, like, uh, setting up, public spaces to display our work or for our students to display their research, um, to write op-eds, you know, in major national um, outlets and also in your your own local community newspaper as well. Uh, So there's definitely been a push for us to get our work out. And so the way that these projects always work, I'll use op-eds for an example, because there's a nice, easy formula for this. You take some current event in the news, Mm -hmm. some national headline, and you say, you know what, this is not new. This actually has a long history. It stretches back to 1543 when XYZ. Um, And so that's the, that's the hook. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you've got 800 words to explain your brief history. Um, And people get real upset about that too, because 800 words does not allow for lots of nuance and context, Mm -hmm. Um, nor can you cite the other people whose great work your own research is, is founded upon. And so there's been lots of debates about that too. Uh, And then you have to wrap up with a quick, you know, half a paragraph explanation of why this matters today. And so because of that format, I think there's been a lot of, well, I mean, it, it, it's contentious for lots of different reasons, but um, yeah, I mean, all, of course, all scholars think 
our work, no matter when it takes place or where it takes place is always relevant to every situation. We can make those connections, even if no one else can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, it's interesting. It is interesting, certain things that people debate or fight about. I mean, obviously, it's important. I think that, um, you know, I think people... I think there's a there's probably a way to do that. I think people reading the front page of the newspaper or whatever the the, the when it comes on your screen, I guess nowadays, but <laughs> the front page of today's newspaper with you know fill in the blank of whatever time period, you know, there's difference. There's there's context. There's environment. Obviously, there's application or things we can pull from, but um, you know, it's just going to be it's going to be different times. And so I, I think it's interesting. It's very hard, right? Because, like, when you know, when I was reading your book, obviously, I've been thinking a lot about um, stuff that's happened on college campuses over the past, you know, five to six, seven years, uh, on on both sides, uh, you know, left, right, and and everywhere in between, and and just that kind of discussion that people have been having, and people have been having lots of discussions about higher ed. You know that, you know, if your book came out in 2012, I probably would have been thinking less about that, and maybe in. 10 years, if I reread it, it might look different, right? So obviously it's when you're reading it or when you're writing or when people are talking about this, yes, we're always kind of, you know, peeking at, you know, things of the moment. But, you know, if those things were less uh, of the moment, we probably wouldn't make that association. And so I think there's these things of like, you know, I guess, how do you do kind of both, right? How do you say, yes, of course, there's things we can see that is like, yeah, that's not so different. This, there are some, some, some echoes of this, but also these things are unique to their moment. And so that has to be, I guess, for, I mean, especially for, 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 for this book and your research, a kind of um, balancing act, you probably have to, to walk. Yeah, for sure. Well, actually, so, um, I mean, I can give you a very personal example of this with this book. When it was my dissertation, I, I started the research in 2016 and then I didn't submit this to a press until 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the things that are going on now in the news in terms of like the you know the campus right or just you know all of the criticism about critical race theory or what have you um that stuff wasn't so much the case in 2016 so um this the book started as a paper in my own history of higher ed course and it, it came from me asking this question so you know Trump had just been elected. Uh, and I remember reading that he had gone to Fordham and that he was at Penn in 1968. And I was like, oh my gosh, what was Trump doing as a college student in 1968? And the answer is nothing. He was he was <laughs> evading the draft. He wasn't doing anything. Um, but he didn't take a side. Like he doesn't appear anywhere um, in the campus floors. He wasn't a member of YAF for college Republicans. In fact, he was, to my knowledge, Democrat until... Uh, it was time to run for president. Um, so he, and he didn't take the opposite, the anti-war side either. So in, in looking for Trump in the archives, um, instead I found other people in his administration. I found attorney general, well, well, Bill Barr. Um, I found Jeff Sessions. I found David Duke. I mean, there were all of these people of Trump's generation on the right that I wasn't learning about in my course. Um, and Tom O'Brien, if you're listening to this, who was my professor for that course, that's that's no shame on you because uh, this is not something that you see, like we talked about earlier, um, and and broad history texts of like the history of American higher ed. So um, anyway, so when I, when I decided that when I wrote that paper, 
I kept thinking about that. Like I wanted to know more about the topic. And so eventually it became my dissertation. But at the time I had to really make an argument to my committee about why this was important. Why do we care about you know, 20,000 college students. I mean, why, you know, they're, they're loud mouths. And, and what I argue in the book is that they actually weren't very effective themselves. They were really only effective when they were echoing or amplifying voices of authority that were already there, mm. like, you know, uh, college administrators or their local police or, um, you know, state legislators, even federal legislators that were uh, you know, very, very against all of the anti-war stuff on campus. And so, yeah, themselves, they didn't actually really accomplish much, but they cut their political teeth. I mean, they learned how these systems of power worked and then they use those lessons to go on. And um, of course that shapes the entire, their entire career and in, in their, their personal politics as well. Um, and then of course they, they go back and train the generations that follow them. Um so I've lost my train of thought. What were what was the question? What were oh oh, oh the making a case for the book? So so yes, I had to argue that pretty hard to my committee, and of course they were interested, um, but they really wanted me to like justify this. Um, and so I had a harder time making the case for my dissertation than I've had to do for the book um, because I submitted <laughs> it <laughs> submitted it to. I'll be honest, it, it's being published by the University of North Carolina. I didn't think in a million years I would hear back from UNC Press. Mm-hmm. Um, I did, and they're publishing the book. I had sent it to some other presses, too, of, of varying prestige. Um, and I got lots of interest everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, right. it is It is timely. It is timely. Yeah. And when it wasn't timely, you're exactly right. I had a harder time making my case. Right, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> the information's still the same, though. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Nothing's like, changed in, in no. 50 years ago. It's still the same, but you know, it's just are people more of an appetite for it, I guess. Yes. Yes. That's perfectly said. People do have much more of an, an appetite for understanding how we got here. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, my thesis hasn't changed. <laughs> if anything, the, the book, of course, is more readable than a dissertation, but mm-hmm. uh, the idea is, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I guess uh, tell us a little bit about, I guess, how the new right uh, on campus was, you know, organized. You talk about it being more top down than it was, I guess, you know, grassroots maybe um, and why that was important. Um, And you you talk about uh, one thing I want to ask. So you can just kind of tell us how it was formed and kind of the demographics and the makeup of, you know, all these different subgroups. Again, not a big uh, uh, number of people, but even within that, all these subgroups of people, I guess, on the so-called right. And, and then, the, and then the other part there is, is, is something that I think about a lot currently, which is, I saw some traces of it, I think in the book of, were they for something or were they just anti-left? <laughs> like, is it just like wanting to like put a finger in the eye of the left because they wanted to own the libs and get points and, you know, whatever, and just the anti you know, that does sound familiar and unchanged in 55 years or whatever. But, you know, so, yeah, so I guess tell us how it formed. What was the kind of the makeup of of this this group and all the subgroups? And then that that, you know, whether what they were for something or were they just anti? <clears throat> OK, so um, just in that one question, <laughs> I could pull out two really good examples of presentism just because we were on that topic earlier. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. owning the libs is something is an expression that didn't exist in 1967, but that's exactly 
exactly what was happening. So that's, you know, that's an instance of, well, we shouldn't use phrases like that and superimpose them on the past. Yes, we should. That's exactly what was happening. You just explained that that was, you know, and then also, so the new right as a term. So this, this constituency of students that I wrote about didn't call themselves the new right. Well, I think, I think maybe uh, some of them did, but it wasn't, they weren't known as the new right until the 1970s. Um, but indeed, these, these were the same people who would eventually become the new right. Uh, so just two, two good examples of <laughs> presentism. Uh, and so your question was, how did they get organized? So um, I spend... I spend a lot of time in the first chapter kind of laying out the landscape of this, um, of them demographically and also ideologically. Uh, so the TLDR version is they're all white, mostly men. Uh, I say all because there are literally three examples of black students that I could find. And then even into the seventies, um, it takes much, it, it literally takes years before you see any more black students start to join these organizations. Even now they are, um, they don't play a very big role. A 2023 example. So LSU is a Louisiana State University. It's only two hours away from, uh, from where I live now. Their campus campus reform group um, has one black member. And if you look at their Instagram page, they promote her all of the time. Uh, like when you see, if you look at pictures that they post of like the entire group, there's maybe 15 or 20 students and then one black woman. Uh, but she is overrepresented in a lot of shots. So um, anyway, I guess all of that to say that this is not, that's one example of how that hasn't changed much over time. So they're almost all white, um, mostly Protestants. Uh, they're really low. Something that was surprising to me is they're really concentrated on the coast. They're in like New England areas and they're in Southern California. Uh, and that's not at all what I expected when I started this research. I thought surely they'd be in the South and Midwest. Um, but that wasn't the case. And, and what I argue is that they didn't need to be in those places in campuses in the South and Midwest, because for the most part, you know, with some exceptions, like at the University of Wisconsin, uh, for the most part, you weren't seeing major protests against the war or for Black Studies programs, not at least at the major state universities. Um, and so, yeah, so they didn't they didn't need to, <laughs> to raise the sort of cane that they did in places like Harvard, mm -hmm. you know, and, and the Boston area and around L.A., uh, so that's where they're located geographically. Pennsylvania also has a big demographic. Um, there are some white women, uh, and a lot of the women did go on to have leadership roles. Some became state chairs, and then I go into some of the nuances of that. Uh, I interviewed some women who said that uh, they had no, no experience of sexism whatsoever, that they just breezed right through just like the guys and, and they had no no different treatment whatsoever and then I had other women that I interviewed who were like yeah of course like it, it was super sexist but I mean you know I agreed with these people and I wanted to be involved and so that's why I joined uh so let's see ideologically um I mean, there's a lot of similarities to, to what we see on the right today. I mean, for the most part, they were traditionalists, so social conservatives, um, very, very religiously represented. Uh, and, uh, you know, when I say religious, I don't mean religious. I mean Christian, uh, Protestant Christian. There were some Catholics, but I mean, there weren't a lot of Jewish uh, members. There certainly wasn't any other religion represented. Um, and 
there was a big libertarian cohort. And I know you had, uh, who was it? Andrew Koppelman on here a few weeks ago. I, I loved listening to that. I haven't read his book. I've read reviews of his book, but I, I enjoyed hearing him I, I, explain. I, I, I got my share of, of uh, criticism from releasing that episode, which I wear with a yeah. badge of honor. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, I thought that you did a good job with it. And I, I thought that he stated his case. So mm-hmm. all of, I will say all of the reviews that I've read of his book have been extremely critical too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that's why I haven't read it myself, but hearing him talk about it was good. Mm-hmm. I still haven't bought it or read it, but it was, like I said, it was good to hear him explain himself. Um, so, yeah, so libertarians were there um, and they didn't get along with the traditionalists. And so um, one of the big themes of the book, and this is going back to the question you asked, like, what, uh, what did all of these people have in common? So at first, not much. When the book opens in 1967, they all have their own little pet projects. Um, Even Young Americans for Freedom, yeah, the largest group was very much about um, anti-communism and traditionalism and um, conservatism as an ideology. And so in, in that respect, they themselves offered a lot of support um, across the aisles, right? There were plenty of, you know, extremely racist Southern Democrats uh, like Strom Thurmond in Congress who, you know, they admired as much as they admired figure like Barry Goldwater, who was a Republican. So um, ideologically driven, uh, definitely found a, a better home for themselves in the Republican Party whenever they graduated and, and went into politics themselves. And so over time, as the parties become more ideologically aligned, it's it's that distinction becomes a lot clearer. But in the early 60s, YAF is founded in 1960, and then throughout uh, the Vietnam War period, they're kind of, they're working with whoever they can, whatever adult figure they can get to support them. Um, let's see, we talked about libertarians. Oh, there are some radical anarchists uh, who Kobelman mentions as well. Um, and to me, they were the most interesting group because there's so much overlap with the left. And, and a lot of times um, in political history, you'll hear people explain the left-right horseshoe, mm-hmm. right? It's not a full circle. It's just, you know, you end up maybe in the same relative starting point, but you get there very different routes. Uh, and I'm sure that's the best way to understand that. Um, I do think sometimes it can be a circle because there's so many people um, on the right and on the left, there's fewer examples on the left, uh, but on the right who got there from the far left, right? They almost, you know, do this whole full circle thing. And I was listening to a really good podcast the other day, um, Slate's Slow Burn. Uh, oh, and it was yeah. on, yeah, the season eight's about Clarence Thomas. And who did they have on that explained this? Oh, Leah, Leah Wright Rigger. Um, and she talked about how many uh, like black militants shared a lot of conservatism. So in the case of Clarence Thomas, this might surprise some listeners. Uh, Thomas was like full blown, like into the black power movement, wore combat boots on campus, grew an Afro, um, had a huge Malcolm X poster on his wall, uh, was the leader of the black student union. Um, and through his near militancy, he does a full circle and ends up on the right. So, and, and she talks about other people who are, who are similar in that vein ideologically. So, I mean, I, I don't think that the horseshoe is the best model for that, but, um, 
I'm not a, a political historian myself. I just I have, I, I have a I have a theory about I have a theory about that. Uh, yes. I don't know how good it is, but my you you see this a lot. So kind of what you're saying: somebody is on one side of things, and then all of a sudden they're on the other side of things, and then sometimes they they just kind of land there, and then they just they just park there, and they're there, they're there, they're entrenched there. Um, you know, Reagan is a good example, I guess. You know, he was a Democrat, and then he, you know, you know the the Republicans for a long time worshipped him, and I don't know what they do now with him, but you know, he was just this you know big idol for them. And my theory is, <clears throat> I thought about this with a lot of people recently, and even historically, is surprise, surprise, is psychological. <laughs> um, <laughs> is I think it's, I don't know if it's true in every case, but I, I see this happen often. And I've thought about that. Um, and I think it's usually there's, there's, a, there's a, an important um, event or a series of events where that person feels rejected or they feel slighted significantly enough or they feel deeply offended or they feel wronged or left out. There's something personal usually uh, that happens to them in formation while they're part of a very extreme or very, uh, very one side of things. And they, they feel disappointed and they eventually, you know, need a place to, to be, and they can't be in that place anymore. Um, And so they drift to the other side and then they just double down forever afterwards. Now, I don't know Clarence Thomas' story about that, but in the example of Reagan, I mean, he was pretty hurt by, um, was it SAG? Was that right? Is that, am I getting this right? Something within the acting community. Uh, yeah, so he was, yeah. Something like that. And he really- He was president of the union, so he wasn't really, like, <laughs> uh, he had a lot of power in that position, side. But continue, I'm But he had, a, he had, like, a, a, a period where he felt- let down like he felt slight i don't remember the story uh where did i read this it might have been it might would have been uh rick's books uh pearl rick pearlstein i think pearlstein, was a, yeah where he talks about some of these things about that switch for him of going from democrat to, to republican and there's plenty of people where you can think about that today where they you know they feel slighted or they feel kind of not accepted with the people that they really agree with and then they they go to the place that accepts them which is usually you know the other side of things now again i'm not saying that that's universally true or that happens in every instance but you know i think that that does happen a lot i mean and i think there's a there's a, a space where you have to really um you have to do a lot of work inwardly to to resist that pull to just go to the other other space. And I think a lot of people don't. They just capitalize on it. They're their motive in, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, even for myself. I mean, I was I was a I was a conservative Christian for a long time. I was a fundamentalist. And um, you know, my eyes were opened, I guess. And uh, you know, I went full militant atheist for a while. And and then I, you know, did a lot of, you know, my own personal work, my own therapy, my own. Uh, ways of trying to say, wait a minute, um, you know, this isn't, it's not an either or kind of thing. How can I find more balance here? And, you know, I like to think that I'm more, a little bit more <laughs> uh, moderate in my my strong beliefs of sorts and in a way that is 
understanding that it's not about all of these different things to take out on other people or to win points against the other side or former side. And I think if people deal with a lot of their own personal stuff, you know, they, they can find, they can find the space. I think in the, in the, in between, you can still have strong opinions. You can still have strong ideas, but that it's not, there's not a personal kind of thing where it's like, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to feel that same way of this kind of not accepting or not, not rejected by a group or this ideology has, has kind of turned its back on me. And it, I can't, I don't, I don't, I don't feel that way anymore. And I've known people personally, and I've seen other things more recently and some things historically where I, I I'm always kind of looking for it now where it's like, where, who hurt them? Where did they get done wrong somehow? And there's usually not always, but there's usually some kind of story. And then my next question is, well, did they handle it? Did they deal with it? Did they try to work through that? And a lot of the times it's no, they just, they just get, you know, invited to, you know, the other group that's waiting for them with open arms and they can, you know, have, you know, a story to tell and all these things. That's my theory. I could be totally wrong on it, but that's my theory in a lot of cases that a lot of people have that. A lot of people have some, uh, there's a personal slight or personal experience or, or something like that. So, you know, I don't know how That's it is for, for a lot of these people. So, I mean, your, your idea with Clarence Thomas or your, your, excuse me, your, your mention of Clarence Thomas, I wonder what, I don't know the story, but I wonder what the story is behind that because it's, it is hard some ways to kind of like make a switch from, from something like that <laughs> to how we know him today. You know, it's very different. Um, and I don't think you just get there by, convincing people on the ideas i mean maybe there's some of that i mean for sure but i think that there's there's a there, we, we attach personal value and meaning to ideas and we hold them important for us and for people around us i don't think we just have them in isolation you know uh, in, in this box of ideas and we don't put any attachments to it so i wonder what that story is so that that's that's my my unproven theory but you know yeah, no, I'm I'm almost certain that there are like volumes written in political science or psychology about the, you know, the the way that people develop their politics over time. Um, I I'm even a more cynical um, analysis when it comes to that. So analysts, when it comes to that, I think that a lot of it, especially the conversion from the left to the right. I don't think it flows the other way, but I think the, you know, being maybe not even leftist, maybe just simply being liberal, but then becoming conservative. A lot of that has to do with grift. Like it's, think about how easy it is to, to be someone in a, like, let's take Democrats, for example, um, as a party right now in 2013 or 2023 and for a long time, uh, the party is just like a big tank coalition. There's not one clear ideology, right? You have plenty of people who are your everyday liberals who don't like Joe Biden for whatever reason. And you got leftists who definitely don't like him. You're Bernie bros, you know? So, I mean, all of these people are tucked into the same camp. You really can't say that about the GOP. They tend to be lockstep, very hierarchical, like the, they're in some ways it's inverted in the sense that the base kind of drives what we see from the leadership at the top, but it doesn't matter which direction the power flows. I mean, there it's flowing, it's flowing cohesively, unlike where the Democrats, you know, they've got all these tributaries to the river. So um, my point there is that if you're moving from the left over to the right, it's easy to just figure out the formula for how to become popular on the right. 
Um, in the same way that you can figure out how to go viral online. I mean, you can find ways to become an instant celebrity. And even if you don't get, you know, some sort of like, uh, like financial reward out of it, at least you get acknowledgement, mm-hmm. right? Where you, on the other side, you may have just been a drop in the bucket. So I do, I am a little bit cynical about that. Uh, one of the things I do remember specifically from that podcast is that when Thomas graduated from Yale with his law degree, he couldn't get a job as a black man uh, in any of the prestigious like New England law firms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the only place that he could get hired was in Missouri. Uh, and that's where he starts his career and meets a lot of um, people who would go on to be very influential for him politically. Um, and he just kind of stays there. But he is a celebrity because he's like, hey, look at this black guy that we, you know, whose views uh, mirror our own. And look, it's coming from him. He's saying these things, not us, uh, is sort of the logic there. So, yeah, I think it's easy to have a quick ascent to be very visible um, and maybe in today's online and political world. Uh, rack up some donations pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. There's there's plenty yeah. of incentives in terms of uh, what you're signaling to whichever group, and there's obviously financial ways in which people uh, signal. I mean, I've had people privately tell me this that they they do this because they make money off of it. I mean, and mm-hmm. and um, you know, again, a lot of a lot of those folks have been have been wronged, or you know, they. You know, they thought too much out loud in, you know, former left circles and they, you know, got the axe and they can't be part of the club anymore. And so they're like, well, who's going to take me? And so, I mean, I I have some sympathy for it, but at a certain point, though, it does absolutely become a grift. And it's like, you know what you're doing and you're preying off of people's um, ignorance on some things. And, you know, I think and then and then it becomes and then it's audience capture and it's, you know, you get these many cults going around and it's just it's it's very um, it's not it's not healthy for for our uh, populace because there's so many legitimate uh, well two things there's so many legitimate issues that don't get discussed and the things that are discussed in a grifting kind of way are important as well but everything is you know I'll, I will say on both sides it is um, unfortunately you know sensationalized too much and I think yeah. if you're talking about important issues you don't want to do that but you literally have every incentive to do that, <laughs> unfortunately. And so it becomes this big, you know, ethical problem that we are still trying to, you know, navigate through. You, yeah, um, I mean, no one, go ahead. well, there's just, there's just no incentive to, uh, like if, if we're talking about the debate format, like you, there's no reason to argue in good faith, right? Your whole purpose is not to get to some solution. It's to win. And so, yeah, yeah so we see the stupidest, um, if I can be so, so crude, we see the stupidest like arguments and just terrible logic, mm-hmm. um, as yeah. a result of that. Yeah. So tell us, you've mentioned it already uh, about uh, the YAF. Uh, tell us about that group, the leadership, uh, how they organize things. They're reading all the classic greatest hits of conservative books. They're on campus. Just talk about their influence, how uh, important they are or aren't, and and kind of what kind of animated them uh, during this period. 
Yeah, so um, so Young Americans for Freedom, YAF, is a project of William F. Buckley Jr. He gets the most credit for it, but it's a it's a product of a couple of different movement leaders um, who were, I say older, they were only in their 30s at the time, but uh, they were like maybe a half or one generation above the college students that they would go on to train. Um, so YAF was founded in 1960, and the, the whole purpose of YAF was to be just like a um, kind of in your face organization that was like extremely dedicated to ideology. And they were just meant to be kind of loudmouths uh, on campus and outside. Because uh, when I address YAF in the book, I'm really only talking about them from a campus perspective, but you could be a member up until you were 30 years old in your community, right? They were community-based chapters of the organization as well. Um, but when Buckley and others designed it, it, the intent was that it was for young people um, to develop not a partisanship, but an ideology. Uh, there is another organization, the College Republicans, um, whose whole mission is dedicated to training partisans. Um, and they are less ideological. Yeah, and that's that's where Carl Rove comes out of. Um, but the two groups did work closely together. So your question earlier was about, you know, what are these, how do they organize? Um, so when when my book opens in 1967, uh, we talk about all of the different uh, distinctions between the groups. A lot of times they were infighting uh, lots of infighting between like YAF and college Republicans or YAF and another intellectual group called ISI, which uh, Buckley was also involved with. Uh, that's the Intercollegiate uh, Studies Society, originally founded as the Intercollegiate Society of Individualists. Um, but there's a there's a really funny quote. I forgot who it's by, but it's one of the major leaders on the right who said, we've got to get rid of this because we sound like a bunch of nudists by calling ourselves individualists. Um, so anyway, ISI, YAF, college Republicans throughout the 60s did not work closely together because they all had different functions. Um, and so when they were at odds with each other, they butted heads. Um, so a, another sort of like, I guess, a, a sub thesis or just another thesis of the book is that these elders, um, luckily and others of his generation, kind of guided them together to say, look, like there's not a lot of us. So if we're going to be effective, um, we need to figure out what we do have in common. And what that came down to is like, well, we all hate the liberals. <laughs> so that's that is the the least common denominator. That's their organizational basis. Um, and then from that, you know, that graduates to what we know today is owning the libs mm -hmm. like we talked about earlier mm -hmm. um so so the concept certainly was there in the 60s even if that particular phrase wasn't used to describe it um yeah so that's their their organizing principle so what did they do um again there's there's some distinctions between the group so if you were a member of and oftentimes, I should say, college students were a member of all three of these groups or two of them or whatever. But if your main organization was ISI, this is an intellectual society. You can think of it like as a literary club on campus where they sit around and read the great books and they talk about, um, you know, scholars that they admire. Uh, they talk about Western traditions and, and what they mean to them. Um, and Western traditions, we can define as exactly what you think it means. We're talking about European history um, and literature and arts and culture. Um, and ISI also has a lot of financial backers. So does Young Americans for Freedom. 
uh, college Republicans, not so much. And I'll explain why in a second. But ISI and YAF are very, very well funded. Um, and the donors to these groups are willing to invest in the students because, so in the, in the case of ISI, uh, they want to see these students become faculty themselves. They say that the, the left is overrepresented, overrepresented on campus, like the faculty members are too leftist. And, the, and I'm, I'm using their words. So they're probably just describing what you and I today would call liberals, but anything to the left of where they were on the right is considered the left. Um, so it's kind of a catch-all term. Uh, so they want students to become faculty themselves. So they invest in them by paying their tuition uh, and then offering them stipends and paying them uh, travel travel fees and honorariums to attend workshops um, all across the country and meet with people and like develop these connections so that they'll go on to have successful careers when they graduate. Uh, so that's ISI. Um, it doesn't do a lot of activism. It's very intellectual. It's very bookish. Uh, the students are taught how to become academics. They're taught how to write. They're taught how to publish. They're taught um, how to speak. And they're, you know, building their CVs. YAF um, is our noisy crowd. Uh, they're the activists. They're the ones that you may see um, picketing um, major American businesses like IBM. Um, there's a, there's, I talk about this in the book. There's a chapter about, uh, so IBM during the Vietnam war and throughout the cold war really was selling, um, supplies, like, I don't know if raw materials is the right word, but they were selling like crude supplies, like rubber, um, computer chips, uh, to countries behind the iron curtain, right? So not necessarily to the USSR, but maybe to Poland or to, um, some other Eastern European country. And so Yaf's argument was, well, they're just using that. They're taking all of that and they're sending it to North Vietnam and they're using that to like uh, kill American troops that are fighting overseas. And so through this long, lengthy argument, um, they come up with some reason to want to boycott IBM and other businesses. Uh, so Yaf, the Yaffers are who you might see standing outside the businesses, holding the, the signs and like yeah, on a picket line. Um, then your last group is college Republicans. Um, the college Republicans are going through residence halls, going through the dorms, knocking on the door saying, are you 18 years old? Let's get you registered to vote. We need you to vote Republican. Um, and then fundraising. So, so what I alluded to earlier, so YAF and ISI are very well funded through private donors who, um, I mean, you only need like 10 people or so to cut big checks and that's enough to fund your organization for a year. College Republicans are competing with young Republican chapters, your state Republican chapters, your national Republican Party. So at every level of this organization, um, I mean, they're having to get really creative uh, in how they fund, fund their chapters. And so they're going door to door um, to into town, to the Kiwanis Club, to the Lions Club, asking local business owners, people on Main Street, hey, you know, you want to donate 10 bucks to us. Um, one of their strategies, I don't know if this made it in the book or not. This is in one draft, at least. I don't even know if it made the final version, but uh, they had literally a script. Like they had these instruction manuals that came from College Republicans headquarters, you know, people in their 30s who are designing this for the 19 year olds that are obeying them. Um, and they literally had a script that they had to memorize so they couldn't bring it with them as they go door to door. But they would have to ask like certain words, like, like 
a certain phrase that said, essentially, um, sir, after knocking on their door and answering, how are you doing? Last time we talked to you was last September. I remember you said your son was going to law school. How's he doing? Oh, your daughter's engaged. Okay. Oh, I see your dog blue, uh, has, you know, grown a lot older. He was a puppy when I was here last year. Anyway, sir, it's good to catch up with you. I just wanted to talk to you about the radical leftists on campus and, you know, all the things they're doing. And so as a member of the responsible college Republicans, this is our budget that we've developed for the 1967-1968 school year. Um, you'll notice, as they hand it over, uh, these are all of the programs that we've designed to stop the radical left. Um, we were hoping that you would give $100 uh, or, you know, however much about um, to fund this project. So they, so your college Republicans, highly trained partisans, um, Less ideological than laugh than YAF and even ISI, but certainly dedicated to getting GOP members into office. Um, and so you put the three of them together, and if if you could imagine this uh, hypothetical student who might have been a member of all three, like <laughs> how uh, well trained that student must have been, and well prepared to go on, you know, even if they didn't go into politics, if they just went into law school, uh, or if they just you know, went into academia, but then, you know, eventually became like a college president, which was the case of two people that I interviewed, the president of Hillsdale in one case and the president of, um, interesting names. This is not a university. It's a, it's a national organization for colleges and universities, and it's escaping me now. Uh, but anyways, I mean, these, these people went on to have careers all over. They didn't just go into the GOP pipeline, but no matter where they ended up, the, you know, their politics stayed with them. Yeah, it's interesting because you, you start to see, I remember in the book too, you start to see it kind of moves off college campus and it starts to become really political, like involved in political campaigns, which, which to say is, it's not to say that students aren't involved in political campaigns, but it, it becomes, uh, at least the way uh, you describe it, very central um, how did that happen? How did that shift happen where you see conservative students becoming more involved in national politics and candidates running for political office? And especially during this period, I mean, in, in uh, you know, 68, which is, I mean, you know, Johnson was never going to win because of the war. I mean, that just wasn't going to happen. So obviously we get Nixon, who is um, such an interesting <laughs> Such an interesting <laughs> person. Um, uh, yeah, he's he's an interesting person. I mean, there's some interesting things about first term Nixon that are not true of second term Nixon, I guess, or you know, it's just different. But yeah, how how did they become involved in in national politics and and you know, people running for you know political office? Um, so I mean, there's lots of different ways. So the two main ways might be um, one just the organic, genuine desire that they had to go into politics. Um, and certainly whether that was naturally there or whether that was less organic and more uh, developed or astroturf, I mean, they certainly had lots of people lining up to train them. Uh, so established members of the GOP or Southern Democrats, like Jim Strong Thurman earlier was a, was a major one. Um, they're willing to invest in these young people. Uh, so in one thing I do need to clarify, I need to back up a second. Um, so 
18 year olds are not actually allowed to vote until 1971. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for, for Nixon's initial 68 campaign, college Republicans would not have been going around knocking on the door for 18 year olds. They'll do that by 19 for 1972. Um, and, and continue until today, they still do the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, they've got this desire to do it. They have all these resources just waiting I mean, people lined up willing to give them money and invest in their time and become mentors to say, here's what you do. Mm. Here's how you here's how you run for the board of trustees uh, at your own campus, which there's an example of a student who does that in California. Mm. Um, not successful, but, you know, the, the effort is still there. Mm. So as it becomes political, and of course there's a interesting climate for that in the in the middle part of the book, you talk about how they more specifically about it wasn't just how they were, you know, anti-left or anti what the other guys are doing. It was more a little bit, I guess, more targeted. So you talk about this uh period in the in the in the book about them being against or having criticisms of black studies programs and, and, and being against this and the role of integration and things like that. I mean, what did they, the, this, the new right in general, but these groups try to do to control or prevent that from, from happening. And just tell us that kind of story about this way of, of, you know, it's not like to my recollection, I don't think there was like an alternative they were trying to pose. It was more of just, we don't want this or this shouldn't be this way, or we should keep it the way it is or things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, as opposed to providing, let's say real alternatives. And I don't know what the cash value of that is, but obviously there are things where in some circles that can be super effective of just being, you know, you, 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 you package it and you frame it a certain way of, you know, what are all these things? What's it going to do? How's it going to impact you? How's it going to change? And then they're against a lot of these programs. I mean, could you, I guess, talk about what the story is there for, for what they were doing? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, there's, if uh, we want to get into the philosophy of conservatism, there's a whole camp of people that would say that is the nature of conservatism is to revert to the status quo or even some, um, imagined time before doesn't matter if it existed or not uh yeah so it but specifically let's use the black studies example so i have a whole chapter um on like the the backlash against what was called what they called the black studies thing right so they they treat a lot of these really important movements as trends Right. Like they think um, being a hippie is a trend. Being against the war is trendy, but not like not some actual um, moral position that you could take um, or think through because to them, there's no other alternative like the their morals are like as Americans, we must win everything we do. We must be dominant globally. But anyway, back to the black studies example. So um, and I mean, their efforts were so varied. Uh, so at some campus, you would see campuses, you would see students, um, writing to, um, like state legislators to their boards of trustees, they would write to Congress and say, uh, this is discriminatory against white people. We can't create a black studies program that would only admit black students and would only have black faculty. Um, white students should be able to enroll too. And of course, they don't even mention any other race. I mean, it's just literally black and white. Um, so, I mean, that's one method. Uh, another really popular method is if, let's say, like the BSU, the Black Student Union, 
um, or some like black uh, chapter on campus were occupying an administration building, they would stage a counter um, occupation. So they might line the building and not let any of the people who were striking inside out. Um, or they would just pick it in and carry signs and be super noisy. Um, but no matter what tactic they did, one of the things that they love to do was publicize all of their events. So it's actually really easy to keep track of what YAF was doing. Um, I remember when I first started doing research, I, I reached out to the president of YAF who connected me to, you know, presidents from 1967. 68 and so on. Um, and everyone I talked to when I was saying like, where's the YAF archive? Like, where are all the issues of the new guard, their magazine, where are all of your, you know, internal documents? And I would get different answers from everyone. Like I remember one, one person said, Oh, they're at the Reagan ranch. That's, you know, where we keep all our stuff. I had someone else say, Oh, they were destroyed in a fire. I had somebody else tell me they were in a warehouse. So I, so at first, I was intimidated because I was like, I'm never going to be able to find all this stuff. I, number one, I suspect they're lying to me. But number two, like, I'm not going to be able to get all these places. Uh, but it turned out with this, you know, access to newspapers.com that I can search YAF and I would find the exact same story because they would write the same press releases. And I would see coverage word for word um, from something that happened in New York or Pennsylvania or California or Texas or I mean, you name it, because they're all like the national office is writing press releases. They're disseminating it out nationally and saying, put this in your local newspaper, advertise every single thing we do, because the idea was they wanted campus conservatism to seem larger than it actually was. Mm. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I actually didn't have a lot of a hard time tracking down what are what's every little thing that they did because they were so prolific about their own successes. Um, and yet yeah, to this day, I still haven't found YAF archive. I do suspect that it is at the Reagan ranch because that's where, so YAF doesn't exist anymore. It's not, uh, there's a, there's a splinter group, an offshoot called Young Americans for Liberty, YAL, um, and its headquarters are at the Reagan ranch. But I mean, a lot of the college archives I went to had issues of their magazine, the new guard, um, for a while, ISI actually had all of its issues digitized on its website. Um, and then they started coming down. But, you know, thanks to the Wayback Machine, you can find them. Uh, and then college Republicans do have an archive. It's at the Hoover Institute uh, at Stanford University. So, yeah. So that's how I tracked down what they did. But then those are the different techniques. <laughs> can you Can you tell me about briefly uh you do mention the book and actually came i was surprised to, to see it i wasn't uh necessarily again expecting to see it but it was interesting uh especially because of my recent conversations uh about how there's this uh libertarians that are in the mix of things and they have a disagreement with the traditionalists and they the libertarians start leaving uh the group and i guess doing their own thing what what was this kind of uh I don't want to say split, but you know, they're, they're, they're in the mix and yeah, then they're not. Split. Yeah. I mean, how, yeah. how do we, how do we understand, was it just ideological or was it just, you know, personalities or was it, what was the, the country, factors to, to why they just kind of left and we're like, we don't want to do this anymore. Well, the, <laughs> one of the first things that um, it's important to understand about the right, at least this is my understanding, the right and the left, but let's focus on the right, um, is extremely attracted to charismatics 
um, and contrarians and people who are not afraid to say something unpopular really loudly. Um, and so that's what we see. That is the sort of the, the beginning of this schism. Uh, so the story in the book um, goes like this. And it, it's a longer story, but this is specifically the summer of 1969, YAF's National Convention. Um, YAF, as a national organization, has just led the way over the past two years from 67 up till then uh, to try to get every faction on the same page of what unites us is that we don't like the left, right? So we're all in agreement of that. Here we go. Uh, by 1969, um, there had been changes to the draft after, after uh, Nixon goes into office. Um, he tries to make the draft a little bit more equitable. Um, and so he does away with the college deferment. And um, I think the process becomes that if you're 19 years old, or maybe it's 18, I'm not sure. Um, but this this specific year, uh, you are going into the draft lottery. Um, and so now college students, even those on the right who for these years had been so pro-war were like, oh my God, this affects me. Like I could actually get drafted. I can't have an exemption. Um, and so we see like campus um, anti-war protests really intensify. So the libertarians, um, for, for readers who are not familiar with libertarian thought. Um, libertarians are extremely against government interventions and what they feel is their own freedom, right? They want everything privately controlled. Um, they're highly individualistic. However, um, part of, part of that ideology of freedom means that there are some overlap with liberals, right? So, um, libertarians don't like police, they don't like police crackdowns of anti-war protests. Um, they don't like the federal government and they don't like the war. In fact, they refer, <laughs> the college students refer to the draft as the selective slavery system. Um, and they call it a violation of the 13th Amendment uh, because you can, I mean, it's like the most antithetical thing to liberty is to be drafted to fight a war for some federal government. So anyway, for uh, for a couple of different reasons, the traditionalist rights do not like the uh, libertarians. And then, of course, there's this radical anarchist faction, even within the libertarians that are more closer to the left of them. And so there's some talk of like, well, maybe we should just leave YAF and, and join SDS, which is Students for a Democratic Society, which is like the, the new left alternative to YAF, um, much better known and much larger. So in the summer of 1969, at this conference, uh, the Trabs, the Libs, and the Rads, your traditionalist libertarians and radical anarchists, uh, are all fighting each other. And this really comes to a head when William F. Buckley, uh, the night of the con that the convention opens, gives a speech, and he's booed by like 30% of the attendees, um, which is like, you can't boo Buckley, like he's their God. He is the founder of their organization, or at least one of them. Um, and certainly a, a big supporter and promoter. Uh, so anyway, that night, the students all are protesting each other. They go back to the hotel room. They're literally getting into fist fights. They're calling for the death of the other one. Um, and then the next day, the libertarians try to get into the convention and they find out their credentials have been revoked. And then they get formally expelled. And it's so dramatic, like really, dramatic. really, really dramatic. It's very dramatic. Yes. Um, and you even have one, one libertarian student, uh, hold up a, in, in the convention, he 
lights a cigarette lighter. And Yaps Emblem is, if uh, you can Google this and find it, uh, listeners, but it's the Torch of Liberty. Um, so it literally looks like a torch. And so he's holding that up, uh, the cigarette lighter, and he takes it to the edge of his draft card or what is supposed to be his draft card. And that just sends the traditionalists over that edge. Like you are not burning draft cards. This is what the left does. Um, and then there's this other brawl. Uh, and yeah, it's a, it's a really crazy two day convention and the organization splits in two. They're exiled and then some of them leave. Some of them go on to start their own libertarian chapters like SIL, Students for Individual Liberty was a big one. They claim that they're international, which I think just meant they got chapters in Canada and maybe Australia. <laughs> but I, I mean, yeah, that's technically international. Uh, and uh, some of them joined the, the new left. And Murray Rothbard, who the woman talked about extensively on your podcast, um, is their, their leader. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. He's... he's uh... If I remember correctly, I think he tries to be consistent. I, if I to his credit, I guess. But um, <laughs> yeah, that is that's quite the story. That's, that's quite it's a lot of a lot of a lot of sensationalized kind of things there. But um, yeah, I mean, well, you know, they do their own thing. They have their own their own way of uh, looking at stuff. So you know, maybe it's for the better that they split off and did their own thing. Um, yeah, yeah, but I mean, they. So this just for a little more context and a little more nuance. I long term they don't actually split. Um, so I mean, their libertarians stay within the GOP, right? They're not, you know, going anywhere meaningful. So they split on paper, but I mean, they didn't go too far. Yeah, and the, I mean, the Koch brothers are one of the um, like libertarian founders, and they still found still fund lots of traditionalist causes. Yeah. I mean, um, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting again, you know, kind of, we were talking at the beginning where, you know, all this is in the, you know, early seventies, but then how this, there's an evolution to this and, and where we see there's kind of these, it ebbs and flows and there's certain periods where, you know, sometimes uh libertarian thought will be more, uh prevalent and then it won't and then it is and it won't and so it's 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 interesting how how it uh they always hang around and uh they They, become more vogue in some periods than others (laughs) yeah and that's actually with the assist of traditionalists who use their arguments all the time so Mm -hmm. even though traditionalists are like oh my gosh libertarians are you know they're crazy they have too much in common with the left well when their ideological arguments can justify some like Mm -hmm gross outcome that traditionalists want, then they use it, right? Like they would borrow libertarian arguments against the draft because they themselves didn't want to be drafted, yet they were uh, in favor of other people being drafted. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, I mean, the the traditionalists even still are, of course, the largest faction on the right. Um, But yeah, the libertarians don't go far because the traditionalists need them. They need their language. They need their framings uh, and and their concepts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I have, I have two final questions for you. Uh, I guess more kind of uh, zooming out. I guess is one is you know from this period that you write in sixty seven to seventy, uh, campus conservatism became an attitude, an identity, culture. I guess how did this just further expand throughout the seventies? throughout the 80s and the 90s on college campuses, but then as we see it within um, in 
in the public and in people that hold you know public office and in and other ways in terms of media and things like that how do we just kind of see this like identity culture this of of uh conservatism which has its roots in this period and and where do we see it all kind of evolve to yeah i mean the the biggest thing that stays the same is that um uniting factor of owning the libs that doesn't go anywhere um so that's one way but then the the strategies the tactics are another thing so um during the 2012 election during the 2016 election um probably even back to 2008 you could if you were looking at like what are college republicans doing on campus to you know support the GOP candidate they're doing fundraisers um like bake sales where, and I forget what the name of this is called. I could probably Google it really quickly, but uh, where you have different prices. So like if you're a white man, the brownie that you would buy would cost $2. But if you're a black woman, it would cost 73 cents or whatever. Um, And just to, just to be like in your face or the, the strategy there and a lot of the activism, like the way that it's expressed, the whole concept is, all right, let's take something that the left talks about all the time and let's just take it to the uh, furthest, like logical extreme and then um, announce it as like, this is what the left wants. Isn't this insane uh, where, you know, things will be white men have to pay more for things or are punished or burdened more for things than, you know, women or um, any other demographic group. Uh, so, yeah, so you see a lot of like shock jock kind of stuff. The media landscape hasn't really changed a lot. I mean, uh, college conservatives who are members of like Campus Reform or um, a Leadership Institute is, is another organization, but they're not as as known. And I think Campus Reform is actually like a project of, of LI. Um, but they I mean, they still have mentors that show them how to do everything like uh Charlie Kirk. Most people are probably familiar with Charlie Kirk. He's a podcaster and a shock jock. Um, he is still like the the figurehead of college students on the right in his organization, Turning Point USA. Right? He's much older than them. That's like a direct parallel uh, to Buckley. Right? Buckley being in his mid thirties, telling eighteen year olds what to do. But Charlie Kirk is I don't know how old he is. We can Google it real quick. Let's I actually do want to know how old he is. Um, I'm going to say he's in his thirties. Candace Owens is another good example of somebody that's telling 18 year olds what to do. Yeah. Charlie Kirk was born in 93. So, you know, they've got, yeah, they have like, if not one full generation older than them, at least a half generation ahead who are professionals, who are established, who have been where they are, except Charlie Kirk, just as a side, never went to college. Um, but they've got these mentors who, in theory, have been in a similar place and they're guiding them through it. Like, look, this is what you say on campus. We're going to get Candace Owens to come speak. And I don't I have no idea what her speaking fees are, but let's say she charges something like $10,000 to make an appearance. College Republicans don't have that in their budget, but Turning Point USA does, and they'll co-sponsor it with college Republicans, and then you, you know, then you get her on campus. Um, so, I mean, in, in that sense, those are the things uh, specific to the campus that have stayed the same. So, so kind of with that, the last question I have here is, is what, what do we see the current landscape on the right and the left and in between on college campuses? And, you know, how does all this history help us understand that? I Further, <clears throat> you tell me what you think about this. I don't, I, it's something I've thought about um, a little bit, but 
I see. So I'm not a Republican. I'm not conservative. Um, I have plenty of friends that are, um, and some good people that, that are, you know, legitimately, I think, you know, just kind of your moderate vanilla, boring conservatives. <laughs> um, a lot of the times of, of what we hear uh, and where the party is at, the Republican party is now is it's a lot of reactionary stuff. It's a lot of anti stuff, right? Um, you know, we have to, you know, the, 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 in one breath, they're going to say we're all for free speech. And in the same breath, they're going to be banning books and banning things they don't like for saving the children and indoctrination and all of this stuff. And I guess there's, there's, I'm a little bit harsher, I guess, for, uh, liberals on this because I feel like in some ways they don't have to push things so far so fast knowing you're going to get the blowback knowing you're going to get all this stuff and the arguments I've heard of that is well we're going to get that anyway so we're just going to go all in and we're just going to do this and I don't know how effective that is or isn't but you have this thing now where you know, conservatives are very good at propaganda. They're really good at creating a narrative. And the thing that frustrates me, and I blame liberals on this, is for people like myself or other people to the left or right of me, kind of within my same zip code uh, politically, you know, for, for moderate liberals or for your kind of standard liberals or your Obama Democrat or whatever you want to call it, um, when people come and they say, well, well, your party this or your side this, look how crazy they are. Look what they want to do to kids. Look how they want to teach them all these things. Look how they want to show them all these things. And the thing that many people will say is, I don't even know about this. Or I don't even, and if I, and if I do hear about it, I don't believe that. Or I don't believe it that strongly. Like you're, the, 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 what I hear from a lot of fellow, you know, kind of moderate liberals is, yeah, well, you're just listening to like, a really extreme left group that's a minority that's just yelling really loud with the biggest microphone or megaphone, excuse me. Uh, and, you know, yeah, sure, that gets picked up. And yes, there's going to be certain mainstream outlets that are going to put that or whatever. But that's not what most Democrats or most liberals around the country, they don't think about that. They don't, they don't believe in all of that stuff. They might believe elements of it or they might believe a, a version of it. But that's that's not what Democrats are. That's not what liberals are. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because what conservatives do is they weaponize this stuff and they make it as the left or Democrats. And I guess what's frustrating for me is liberals don't um, – it's, again, it's a lot of like wanting things to change so fast and I can sympathize with that. But it, and it's also much of the people, I would say, in the majority of the that big tent, that big coalition that aren't, you know, very, very extreme left, don't say anything. They don't, they don't raise enough kind of saying like, hey, let's pump the brakes here on this. We can take elements of this. Let's not, you know, kind of keep their house in order. I don't know if it would or wouldn't be effective, but it feels like, I think if we had more of that where we were able to say like, hey, look. That doesn't work. That 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 line of reasoning of this is what the left is or this is what Democrats are, that's not what that is. That's not who 
And we don't get that. And I do think that within the own party, people on the left will, if if I were to, if someone for me is again, moderate liberal, were to talk to somebody that is, you know, very, 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 very far left, you know, then they're going to come and attack me. It's like, hey, wait a minute. We're on, we're on the quote unquote same side here. You know, I just, uh, you believe this out of 10. I believe it at like a six, but we still believe in the same thing. Why are you attacking me? And, um, and I think that that's, in terms of how we have a, a, a political conversation, whether this is on college campuses, because obviously you have things like, yes, literature and books and bands and curriculums and uh, free speech and all these things, or if it's online or if it's in certain campaigns, all of these things kind of are in the mix. And I guess my my rambling question here is, how do we, I guess, navigate this or, or, you know, what are your thoughts on this and how do we navigate some of these, uh, narratives or the ways in which we talk about these things? Hmm. Um, I don't have a good answer for you. Uh, right. so let That's me right. start there. Um, but I'll, we can explore it, but it, the first thing though, is I, I might say that you're also using the same rhetorical strategy uh, that many people on the right do and conflating liberals and progressives. And I, I know you're not, you were making a distinction later towards the end, but like, um, so like when you were saying that, uh, you know, liberals want to push things on people too quickly, that's usually people are describing progressives. So like to, to me, this is how I would define the difference between the two. So like a, a liberal is someone who's like, wow, um, police are really killing black Americans at a, insane rate. And this is a huge problem. And a progressive is shouting defund the police, right? Yeah, or like yeah. a progressive might be a member of the DSA. And so when you were saying like, oh, I, I hate being attacked by the far left because it's like, aren't we on the same side? Well, someone who's a member of the DSA would say, no, we absolutely <laughs> are not. I am not a member of the Democrat party. Uh, and you're a problem just as That's much fair. as the right That's is. Fair. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. So, I mean, in some sense, there's a little bit of like a, a category categorization problems or like we're talking past each other because we're describing groups of people who, and we disagree about who's in either group. And so when you say left, who do you actually mean? And when the right says, yeah, yeah, but but that's what the right will say though. They'll say that basically all liberals are progressives and that's, there is a distinction, right? I think there is a distinction. And, yeah. but, but, but they yeah, don't progressives would definitely say so too, <laughs> but, but, but the right gets to own that way of talking about it. Cause they'll say, they'll take the, the most extreme progressive idea let's say. And again, I'm not beating up progressives. I think there's some really great progressives and I, and I really uh, respect a lot of what they have to say. I don't agree with all of it or the way in which they do it, but, and they'll say, that's the whole, that's all the Democrats. It's like, that's not what that is. But it, it, it my point is, is that when they control that narrative, and and liberals don't say anything about it, or they don't have any enough pushback, I should say. The, this other side controls this narrative. That's not true. That's not true, and that's problematic, right? Because you, as you're saying, there are categorical distinctions that are important. They are important. I would totally agree with you on that. But I guess my frustration is is that there isn't enough outspokenness to say let's let's just make this distinction. Um, and I just don't see that happen as much. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, again, I don't, I don't have the solution, but I think that um, it is extremely, as you say, extremely effective for the right to put everybody um, in the bucket of far left. Um, and you, and actually, you can't do that the other direction because if anybody today, like I know, there's a small contingent of like never Trumpers, um, but anyone who is a like card carrying member of the GOP today. You can't say, well, they're a little bit more moderate conservative. They're not crazy conservative. Excuse me? Like, what, what is the leadership of the GOP? What are the ideas that come out of, you know, the rights publications? Who, like, the intellectual leaders or the political leaders? Like, it's all completely unhinged right now in this political moment. Um, and so, yeah, so you can't, you can't use the same strategy of saying, you know, trying to find nuances um, on the maybe crazy far right versus more reasonable right. Um, yeah, there's just not a big enough reasonable contingent, I don't think. I mean, I have read, that's not to, here's the nuance, that's not to knock everybody on the right. I have read very sure. smart yeah. thinkers yeah. Um, on the right. I just haven't read them since 2016. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they've all lined up behind, behind <laughs> Trump or Trumpism. And so what do you, what do, you do with that? You can't, it's, it's like that we said. It's, it's like what we said earlier. I mean, that's. I mean, if you take people like you know, I guess uh, I don't know, a Mitt Romney or or you know, my former governor Larry Hogan or some of these kind of moderate conservatives. I mean, they don't even get. I mean, they just get. I mean, not even a way to appear on anything. They get laughed off. They're not. I mean, they wouldn't even. These guys wouldn't even. In a national campaign, they wouldn't poll. I mean, probably even five yeah. percent. I mean, that's just not yeah. where they're at. I mean, Liz Liz Cheney is the best example of that. So, yes. um, Liz Cheney, for listeners who are not familiar, uh, was literally like kicked out of the GOP, like mm-hmm. exiled mm-hmm. Um, for cooperating with the January Sixth Committee. Uh, Liz Cheney got a lot of praise from liberals, not from progressives, but liberals who are like, mm-hmm. hey, congratulations. We're glad to see a reasonable person on the GOP. If you laid out Liz Cheney's like political accomplishments, that there's nothing there that we should be clapping about, right? Because she, like her legacy oh, yeah. is, is not one that someone who is fair-minded <laughs> like on the political spectrum should be happy about, but yet here we are for, you know, applauding the, well, you're at least you're, or the same thing with Mike Pence. I mean, we saw liberals say, yay, Mike Pence, thank you for doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were, the crowd, the, the crowd on January 6th was literally calling um, for his death. So, I mean, the, the fact that he is going on with the, the procedural technicality of his job by counting votes is, uh, or certifying uh, votes is just insane that that praise is there. And that's something that, that somebody on the left would say, like, you know, we can't, we can't clap for a Liz Cheney figure or mm-hmm. um, an Adam Kinzinger, or mm-hmm. certainly not a Mike Pence who has his own extremely disturbing political past mm-hmm. and present. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, again, that that's just the, how low the bar is, which is, I mean, yeah. not good for our, our, are democratic institutions politically, but I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's it's very frustrating. To your point. I mean, the, the adults in the room, the people are having actual serious debates are people liberal. I guess for me, I think of a, of a liberal as somebody that's much closer to the political center. Um, 
So that's that's what I say when I'm talking about a liberal. Uh, liberals to leftists are where like actual debates are going on. Like, should we be proud of Liz Cheney or Mike Pence or whatever for you know the the recent heroic democracy saving things? I guess. Um, <laughs> so that's where the debate's going on. Versus on the right, there is no nuance. There's none. I mean, it's it's all like, okay, we're kicking her out of the GOP. She is shunned. She is she'll never come back. It doesn't matter her shining track record for the right. That doesn't matter. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, she's standing in the way of you know Trump Trumpism, whatever, then she's an enemy. Mm-hmm. And so that rhetorical or or just that conceptual framing is so easy for them to have that audience capture, like you were talking about earlier. There's no thinking involved. It's very clear cut. It's very, you're in, you're out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so, I mean, that's the persistent problem for people who are uh, liberals in the in leftward um, is we're willing to engage in some sort of mm-hmm. debate and understand and recognize nuance when it doesn't happen on the right. Mm-hmm. So what are the that's the, the lesson they learned in 1967? <laughs> <laughs> what, what are the I guess the one or two things that you really want people to kind of take away from from your book? What do you want them to kind of to really grab onto and and really walk away with after reading your book? Um. So one, and this is my speaking to historians or political historians first, and then I'll speak to Ed historians. Um. Uh, and, and hopefully more than just those two uh, areas of, of readership <laughs> are willing to read the book. But um, for anyone who is going to read this book with like a very critical academic lens for political historians, I would say uh, we really need to back up the new right to their time on campus. Um, and we need to know about more than just YAF. We need to recognize that college Republicans were like a real important force, even if they didn't achieve much at the time later, that they're laying the groundwork um, in the late 60s. And also ISI, uh, those two groups groups get overlooked. And in our conversation today, we didn't even talk about Campus Crusade for Christ or InterVarsity or the Jesus Freaks. I mean, there's like there's so many other groups, but those are the three big ones. And so um, I would say that we need to consider YAF more seriously. Um, as well as those other groups. And then to Ed historians, I would say, hey, guess what? There was a college right. I mean, we don't even talk about the college right at all. At least, excuse me, at least political historians recognize uh, that something might have been going on there. It's it's completely overlooked in the history of education. Mm, Yeah, that's, that's great. Well, the book is called Resistance from the Right, Conservatives in the Campus Wars in Modern America. Uh, where's the best place for people to uh, find yourself, whether online or, or any place to uh, to get at you to 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 reach out and uh, and uh, you know coordinate or communicate with you in any way? Yeah, uh, so I have a website. Um, it's Lauren Lassab, L-A-S-S-A-B-E dot com. Um, I'm very active on Instagram. Uh, I have a Twitter account that I sometimes am active on, and then sometimes I'm not. I just got a blue sky code like very recently. So you can find me there. My handles at every social media account is L Lasab. So L L A S S A B E. Um, yeah. Mm. I'm the only, I, so my married name is Shepard, but I can't be Lauren Shepard as an academic. Nobody will ever find me. I'll get buried. So if you literally, if you just Google the word Lasab, like on the top of it, you'll find me. That's great. <laughs> I, uh, I can't say enough thanks for, for you coming on and giving me your time. I, I really enjoyed the conversation so much, and your book is great. And so uh, I'm really, really, really thankful for, for, you, for you coming on and having such a wonderful, wonderful conversation. 
Yeah, likewise. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. Absolutely.